loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Jessica Vitalis. Jessica is a Columbia MBA-wielding writer. After leaving home at 16, Vitalis explored several careers before turning her talents to middle-grade literature. She brings her experience growing up in a non-traditional childhood to her stories, exploring themes such as death and grief, domestic violence, and socioeconomic disparities. With a mission to write entertaining and thought-provoking literature, she often includes magic and fantastical settings. An active volunteer in the KidLit community, she also founded Magic in the Middle, a series of free monthly recorded book talks to help educators and caregivers introduce young readers to new stories. She was recently named a 2021 Canada Council of the Arts grant recipient. An American expat, she now lives in Canada with her husband and two precocious daughters. She loves traveling, sailing, and scuba diving, but when she's at home, she can usually be found reading a book or changing the batteries in her heated sock, socks and writing books, too, including the book we will be talking about, um, The Wolf's Curse. Welcome, Jessica. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to have you. I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about how to uh, invite, you know, young, young people, uh, you write for 10 to 14 year olds, basically, into subjects like grief and loss, because uh, even people who are very, uh, very conversant in grief for themselves don't always know how to handle that. So I appreciate the opportunity to talk about that. And that's exactly why I'm happy to be here. I find that it's just so important for us to have these conversations with children. And I'm thrilled that I have a book out there that can help start opening the dialogues. Yes. And having just finished reading the book, um, what I appreciated so much is uh, that it, it captured the way that grief feels, Um, you know uh, it, it felt true to me. And that you were very straightforward. Would you like to tell the story a little bit so our listeners kind of get a sense of of the book and what story it tells? Sure. So The Wolf's Curse is a twist on Grim Reaper mythology where an invisible great white wolf is searching for somebody to take her job. But the only person who can see her is a 12-year-old boy named Gage, Unfortunately, Gage has spent most of his life in hiding because he's been accused by the superstitious villagers of being a voyant or a type of witch. And then Gage actually spots the wolf stealing his grandpapa's soul and he vows revenge. So our poor little Gage joins forces with another orphan and they embark on a life-changing journey that reveals some surprising truths about the wolf and about the nature of death. And, you know, I, I'm always aware that grief doesn't 
doesn't find us, uh, you know, fresh and fresh and uh, <laughs> un. Um, we, we usually have experiences before the big griefs, mm-hmm. and both of these children have lost people before, but at a such a young age that they're not quite this this is kind of their first time consciously entering loss wouldn't you say yeah, um I but so. i have to think that's part of their stories that they've they've lost parents they've lost other people of great significance you know that's interesting i don't know that i had ever really thought of that in terms of their backstory but you're right both of them had already lost people they loved and they had been so much younger that they weren't at an age where it had the same sort of impact that it's having on them at this particular point in their life i think middle school students are at such a turning point where they're not quite kids anymore and they're not quite adults and they're trying to figure out not just their place in the world but how they fit into or not just their place in their families excuse me but how they fit into the greater world and so that's what i was really wanting to tackle with this story and having um you know gone through grief with kids what what my particular children are capable of continues to change at different ages um, they're now well grown, but um, you know, I, I see that their response to loss, um, they have a, a sort of wisdom about it from those experiences, but the ways they're able to process it have changed remarkably over over all the years. Um, you know, for a, for an age reference, uh, the youngest was two and a half when my wife died, and she's now twenty eight. So it's kind of a long arc. Uh, I think um, part of the reason I figured that out was not only because of my own experiences, which I know we'll get to, but also my children were maybe two or three, maybe a little bit older, three or four years old when we had the experience where a rabbit died outside our window. And I was thinking, oh gosh, this is it. I'm going to have to talk to them. And I think as parents, we can be so scared to have those conversations with our children. And I just was honest with them. I said, the rabbit has died. We're going to have to bury it. And I wasn't quite sure how my daughter would react. And she ran and got a sketchbook in a chair and pulled up a chair and just wanted to capture the rabbit. And that Mm. helped me realize that we can just be honest with the kids about death and about grief and help them explore their feelings. And um, that's, I think, a healthier approach than trying to sugarcoat it or dance around it or, or not talk about it at all. Absolutely. I've I've talked before on the show, we had a long time to prepare, which, you know, I wouldn't recommend, but I would on the other hand. <laughs> you know, we learned a lot over time. And uh when we knew that my wife was finally and definitely going to die within a short period, we actually got a stethoscope and listened to all our heartbeats and described that 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 uh, her her heart would not beat anymore, her body wouldn't work anymore, you know. And uh, she never had, even at that young age, she never had the fantasy that she was going to come back. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because if you have information, concrete information, and of course she was there when she died as well, probably helped. But um, that surprised a lot of people that she didn't um, fantasize, you know, that or think she'd come back in some way. Never came up. You know, I think that's so important to have those honest conversations. And that's part about one of my goals in the story was to make death and grief accessible for children. I think when you look at how 
death is often portrayed in just greater media for children. It's really harmful. We have these stereotypes or these tropes of Halloween, for example, or the Grim Reaper, where death is portrayed as this dark, masculine, black figure carrying a scythe. And when we think about what kind of messages those are sending kids unintentionally, mm-hmm. how can they not be terrified of death? <laughs> And, and if we don't sit down and have conversations to counteract that, think of the damage that can be done long-term. And so in writing this book and sitting down to figure out how I was going to portray my Grim Reaper, it was really important to me to give children a different side of the story, something that felt accessible. And of course, I'm also aware of kids getting the exact opposite message, a kind of sugarcoating of death in a better place, went to heaven, you have a guardian angel now, without without the reality of what death truly is. And that's just very confusing, those, those double messages. Let's share a little bit about the book so people can get a, a little taste of, of what we're talking about, this sort of direct um, talk about uh, your character's grief. Could you share a little bit from the book? Absolutely. So this is an excerpt from after the main character, Gage, has lost his grandpapa. And in my book, when somebody loses a loved one, this is a historical fishing village. And so they believe their loved ones sail up to the sea in the sky where they sail into eternity. And so the place that they go isn't a cemetery to bury their loved ones. It's called the wharves. And instead of being buried in coffins, they are buried in vessels. So the scene I'm going to read is Gage visiting his grandpapa because his grandpapa's burial wasn't complete the first time for reasons that are a little bit of a spoiler, so I won't tell why, but in any case. The children lower themselves to their bellies and slide carefully under the wooden fence, ignoring the ground's icy chill. Crouching on the other side, they tiptoe closer to the old man's hole. The sight of his grandpapa's form laid out in the vessel is nearly more than Gage can bear. He falls to his knees and buries his face in the old man's chest. I did it, grandpapa, he sobs. I brought feathers to complete your release. Shh, Rue warns. Gage knows he needs to distribute the feathers around his grandpapa's vessel. But now that he's here, he can't make himself do it. Once the old man has the feathers... There will be nothing holding him down, nothing keeping him nearby. The thought makes Gage feel empty and untethered, as if he could float right up into the sky and light a lantern of his own. Rue remains silent as long as she is able. Gage, she finally whispers, we can't stay here forever. She jerks her chin toward the guards at the front gate. Then she adds, the guard down below will grow suspicious if we don't return. The boy lifts his head, wipes his eyes. She's right. He has to do this for his grandpapa. With great care, he spoils each of the feathers one by one and tucks them. He smooths each of the feathers one by one and tucks them inside the old man's vessel. Without a word, Rue moves closer. Pulling more feathers from her pockets, she joins Gage, adorning the boat with the best of her lot. When the two finish, the only sound is their breathing. It's time, Rue finally says. Gage wishes he could bury his grandpapa's body, but he knows he's done what he can, what really matters. He leans over and kisses the old man's cold cheek. Sail in peace, grandpapa, he whispers. 
You know, I was so aware, Jessica, of the subtext of belief system and um, how belief system gets used. That's, of course, a big subject in the U.S. right now. Um, and, um, and how different belief systems work for different people. Um, and, you know, how do we sort out kind of the truth of what is tradition what what has a deeper uh, a deeper truth to it um, there was a complexity to that that I thought also was notable in a kid's book I think one of the things that's really neat about writing fantasy and particularly fantasy for children is that it operates on a lot of different levels. So kids who aren't ready for those type of different discussions can come to a book like this and they can really enjoy the book. They can enjoy the fantasy adventure and the snarky wolf and the plot that happens. But then readers who are more mature, readers who are looking for those discussions, maybe readers who are reading with their families, it, they can find also the complexity that you're talking about. And one of the things that I wanted to do was open dialogues. So I don't have the right answers for everybody. I am acutely aware of the fact that my readers come from all different backgrounds, all different spiritual traditions, and have all different beliefs. What I wanted to do was use a fantastical system to encourage people to start asking the questions so that they can engage in a dialogue and really arrive at a very personal definition of what death and grief look like, what the afterlife looks like, and how as a family and a community, they manage that subject. Uh, yeah, I thought it was, uh, there was one point in the book where um, uh, a truth was illuminated and yet many people chose to continue what they had traditionally done, but not because they didn't know that, that the truth was something different, but because it was comforting, it was reassuring. And I thought that was kind of an important uh, aspect that we're reassured by our rituals, um, regardless of what we quote unquote believe. Uh, they're, they're kind of two separate things in a sense. Yeah, exactly. And that's, and that's exactly part of what I wanted to explore is, is what do we believe? What do we do because we feel like we have to versus things that we do because they bring us comfort. And that's a big part of grieving is what do we need to be able to say goodbye and to let go? And a lot of times it is our traditions and our rituals that help us do that because it gives us a sense that we're part of something bigger. Especially if they resonate kind of on a deeper level than superficial. Um, you know, uh, for me, ritual usually is kind of an invented um, thing. But for others of uh, people I know well, um, for instance, many of my Jewish friends are very comforted by the rituals of that faith. Mm -hmm. Um and and it's very beautiful, you know, when I go to a shiva or, or you know, a, um, a yard site or whatever it is, it's it's comforting. It's uh, a protocol. It's a it's a way of grappling that I think is so meaningful. So I would say, um, you know, it wouldn't not everybody would choose this as uh choose these subjects as what they want to write about. 
and you have. So in these last few minutes of this segment, could we talk about how you came to want to write the books you write? Uh, why do these subjects capture you? Because I've written a book, you know, you have to be captured. You have to really be committed. It's, it's not an easy process. Um, so what brought you to it? Well, that is a very complicated question. I would say I didn't, first of all, intend to write a book about death and grief. Looking back, I think it was inevitable because I had so many encounters with death and grief as a child. But at the time, my goal was really to write enjoyable stories. My mission is always to entertain kids and make them think. I actually thought in writing a book with a grim reaper that maybe I was going to try something different and I was going to try to write a humorous story or maybe death tried to try to to trick kids into taking her job. And I wrote the first draft and I sent it out to a couple of readers and they said, this really isn't working. There aren't any themes there. And that was the point where I kind of had to step back and go, okay, I need to come back to my roots. I need to dig a little deeper. I need to figure out why this story was calling to me. And I need to figure out how I'm going to do it in a way that feels authentic. So it was sort of a, a long journey to get to the point where I realized that I really had to write about death and grief and that I had to do it in a way that felt really honest. You know, you've mentioned to me maybe before we got on today, even that uh, you had a lot of loss in your own childhood and no one talked to you about it. And uh, I could imagine that since this is about this show entirely is about loss and transformation, I could imagine that that could really drive you to not have kids be at sea in that way, that they had they would have ways to grapple with what they're what they're experiencing well that was exactly it as i went through my childhood not only did i experience a lot of grief and loss but i experienced a lot of poverty and a lot of trauma and throughout all of that there weren't any books at all really that providing me any sort of a model. I read all the time. I read because I could escape, but I look back and think, how might have I coped differently if I had been able to see aspects of myself or my life in books? And so mm -hmm. as an adult, that's what I hope to give to children is a way that they can see other children experiencing things that feel familiar and leave them with some hope that they're going to come out the other side okay. Because when you're in it and you're a kid and you don't have people supporting you, it's it's real hard to hold on to hope. There's way more to say about that. So let's take a break and come back and talk some more about that. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And to find Jessica Vitalis, you can go to Jessica Vitalis. It's V-I-T-A-L-I-S dot com. Be back soon. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com. 
betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones. And I've been talking with Jessica Vitalis about her middle school novel, The Wolf's Curse. And Jessica, before the break, we were... Um, talking about feeling unsupported as a kid yourself with many difficult experiences and how that sort of drives wanting to uh, improve that for kids and um, give them access to ways of thinking and, and ideas that maybe you didn't, didn't have. Can you, Tell us a bit about your what you're referring to in your childhood that that felt unsupported for you. Sure. Well, it started actually. My father was killed while my mother was pregnant with me. So she was 17 and five months pregnant, and my teenage father was found on the highway in the middle of the desert. Um, he had been run over, and that was the mystery was never solved. And so my mother was a 17 year old. She was away from her home because she had went down to Nevada to be with his family. And so I think anytime you start out life in those circumstances, um, there's going to be a certain amount of, of uphill climbing that you have to do. My mother went on to, um, take on another partner and have another child 18 months after I was born. And, when I was four years old, they separated and that man took my sister and my mom kept me. So Mm -hmm. I kind of had this duality of growing up in the shadow of a father that my mother missed and talked about all the time, but I had never met. And then also this loss of having lost a sister that all of a sudden, you know, we had grown up together, lived together. And then she was just gone from my life. She moved to the other side of the country. So those, and those are very disenfranchised losses. I know from, from uh, my own world, 
uh, when you, people often don't count that kind of loss in some way, you know, geographic moves and um, separation of children. And, you know, uh, of course, in my world that uh, of um, LGBTQ community, that happens quite a lot, unfortunately, that people get separated from their parents and their siblings who have different moms and you know it's uh, unfortunately fairly common less so now that uh, legal marriage is a possibility right yeah unfortunately you're right it is a lot more common than any of us would like to think and it's incredibly painful it's it's very much like um grieving especially when you're a young child and you don't have the mental capacity to understand if you're ever going to see them again or how you're going to see them again. All you know is that one minute they're there and the next minute they're not. And I have specific memories of a child where something had happened. I think I'd maybe slammed my finger in a car door and I couldn't stop crying. And um, my mother's next partner was a very emotionally abusive man and and very, very frightening. And he was very angry at me because children weren't allowed to cry. And I remember this moment where I just blurted out, I miss my sister. And I think, Mm. I don't think I had any awareness of the fact that that's why I couldn't quit crying. But I just remember that being such a revelation of, of just as a small child, it wasn't really so much about the pain in my finger. It was about the pain in my heart. Oh, what a, what an amazing thing to be able to remember and reference that your, your little body was trying to process and you actually kind of knew it, you know, in some part of you. Some level. Absolutely. And, and, and perhaps also I was a very smart child. And so, um, you know, that did get me out of trouble a little bit in the sense that my mom jumped in and I got a little bit of a break. So, you know, perhaps that was part of it too, but (laughs) (laughs) could well be, could well be. And, you know, I'm just thinking about the uh, experience of having a mom that young without all the rest of it, you know, who knows how to be a mother um, to any great degree at 17. So, you know, I'm sure that was a factor in it too. And, and absolutely none of it is to throw stones at my mother. She's a wonderful, loving, kind, gentle woman, but she, you know, she went through the school of hard knocks like many people do. So she's absolutely. And, and uh, in my mind, you know, our job is to understand our childhoods and how they influenced us bad, good, and indifferent, all of it, because <laughs> there's no perfect parents. That is for sure. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> there's, you know, which mistake do you want to, do you want to pick? <laughs> it's kind of where it comes, comes, what it comes down to, doesn't it? Absolutely. We, we always joke with our children when they get mad at us that at least then they'll have, you know, something specific they can go talk to their therapist about. So that's good. It's going to be very directed, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I actually have had a um, consistent joke with my now wife, uh, you know, when something goes on that, that um, doesn't go quite right. And we'll just turn to each other and not anymore so much because they're grown. Right. But, but we'd say here, we'll pay for that session. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So let's share a little bit more of the, more of the book. Um, The part where um, Rue, the, the girl that Gage ends up, 
conspiring with, traveling with, etc. Um, when her father is about to die. Okay. Rue's shoulders heave. She raises her head, revealing a tear-stained face. Will it hurt terribly? Children lose their teeth before new ones grow. Leaves fall off the trees in the fall and return in the spring. The sun sets at night, but rises every morning. Are you saying you don't know? Rue asks. I'm saying it isn't easy to accept what we can't understand. But one thing I know to be true is that light always follows the dark. The pain in Gage's chest is fiery and raw, but maybe his grandpapa is in a better place now. Soon the blacksmith will be too. Ruth strokes the blacksmith's hand. Go ahead, father. I know you're hanging on for me, but I'll be fine. Go, you'll feel better once you reach the sea in the sky. Fresh tears leak from her eyes. Gage admires her bravery. He loved his grandpapa more than anybody in the world. If he had known death was coming, he would have begged the old man to fight it, to stay at all costs, but that would have been selfish. Watching Rue, he can't help but think that sometimes the best way to love somebody might be to let them set sail. What stood out to me when I read that part of the book is just that no matter how death comes, there's a tendency to think you did it wrong. Poor Gage, this this boy who's doing the best he can under really trying circumstances is inside of himself feeling he should have done better, um, which, of course, it doesn't seem as if he could have given the circumstances that, that touched my heart. I love that you pick up on that. I had the honor of doing hospice care for my father-in-law a number of years ago. He was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and he was given six months to live. And my husband is an only child. I was very, very close to his father. So I moved in with him and provided his, his care. And one of the things that he said to us toward the very end is he said, I want you to know that it's okay. Everything you have done is okay. And I don't want you to second guess yourself. And I don't want you to feel bad or guilty at the choices you make and how you handle things. And that was such a gift to us because it is so hard to let people go and to be making decisions about what to do with their belongings and whether you made the right medical decisions and, you know, should you have fought harder or kept them around longer. And so I love that you, you caught a little bit of that in this little piece that, um, Yes. And I, I have to say, I, I had a really hard time. It took me several years to write my um, advanced directive because the standard advanced directive is just so limited. Uh, and one of the things I put in it was um, you're going to have to make decisions. There's no wrong decision. If you made it, it's the right decision. I think that's such a gift to your loved ones. Yeah, it, they may they may end up having no decisions to make, right? But but to me, it's just uh, it it the crush of of grief when people feel they've somehow done it wrong, you know, uh, is just it's it's very very hard to work through. Um, 
can take a long time. So he gave you a great gift there and, and it found its way into the book, huh? It did. Yes, it did. Quite, <laughs> quite a bit of his spirit found its way into the book. I'm happy to say we haven't talked about this yet, but I had some very specific negative experiences with death as a child. And I was lucky enough to go through this experience with a man who was just so gentle and wise and helped counteract some of my fear of death and, and help me see that it could be more of a peaceful journey than, than what I had uh, thought. That's interesting. Cause one way of looking at, at, um, therapy as a broad category is um, that the old things come up, but you have a different experience. Mm -hmm. um, so that happened for you. Maybe you could say, I, I think there is something very healing in that to, to, um, to have a different perspective on loss because of a beautiful experience. It's still loss. Grief is still grief, but it can be beautiful. Uh, what were the early experiences that were so hard that that helped you kind of face, I guess, or um, uh, so there have a different experience with? Mm -hmm. um, but besides losing my father and sort of all of the shadows that hang over you when there's when you've lost somebody you don't know, the two specific experiences were first that when I was. I want to say I was four. I don't know my exact age. My grandfather passed away. And I remember being at the, the wake. And I remember standing at the back of the room and my aunt picked me up. And I was looking at my grandfather's body in the coffin. And I was terrified. I did not recognize this man. I wanted the man that held me on his lap and bounced me on his knee and taught me to count to 10 in Spanish. And I didn't know what was happening in that room, but everything about it felt wrong. And so my aunt thought that to help me process that she would have me touch the body. And I did not want to touch my grandfather's body. And I remember this intense terror of not wanting to do that. The funny thing is, I don't actually remember if she ended up having me touch the body or not. All <laughs> with me, the only thing I can remember from that entire experience is the fear of this body with this dead person that didn't feel good to me. So that was a really powerful moment for me that really, that really cemented death as being something very scary in my world. Hmm. And then unfortunately that was reinforced a few years later my mother comes from a very large family, a family of 14 children. And one of my uncles, who was only a few years older than me, was killed by an accidental gunshot wound. And so we traveled back to my grandparents' house for the funeral. And we walked into the house and my grandmother and several aunts and uncles were around the table upstairs. And all of the kids were always sent down into the basement in the rec room, which was fine. It was a normally a very fun, large room that we had a lot of fun in, but to get there, you had to walk through a really long hallway with no windows. And then you had to turn a corner and walk through another hallway with no windows, which was always very, very scary, but it was always worth it to get to the rec room where all the cousins were waiting. So I gathered my courage. And I went on this walk down these two long, dark, very frightening hallways, because again, there was this death thing that was going on and the adults upstairs were not happy. And I didn't know what was going on. And I burst into the room expecting like, okay, my cousins will have my back. This is where the fun is going to happen. Instead, all of my cousins were gathered around the television and they were watching Michael Jackson's 
thriller video where you have the music pulse. Oh my gosh. <laughs> what are the odds that that's the one? We didn't even have a television. I had never seen a music video. And so not only was that my first experience, but it was such a visual experience of seeing these dead hands rising up out of the cemetery and these zombies. And I mean, my terror was absolute. I literally remember just crumpling down into a beanbag and shutting my eyes and praying that this would be over soon. <laughs> and so, you know, again, two, two very early experiences with death where the adults in my life didn't have any conversations to help me make sense of what was going on. And if I had books, perhaps I could have understood that there were different ways to handle this very frightening thing that I was feeling. Well, the other part of that, though, too, is sometimes you get an indicator uh, from a kid that they're scared or that that something they're trying to process something. But often you don't, um, you know, often you have to kids get the message. They're not really supposed to ask too many questions, you know, or um, and and how do you read a crying child? Uh, you don't necessarily know. Um, people don't necessarily know that's a, that's a cry for a conversation, right? Um, so I think those those cues from kids get misread a lot, uh, and I wonder if that was part of it too, because your family doesn't sound like the most hidden I've ever heard of. Like uh, uh, I'm thinking of one of my teachers, Stephen Levine, who once told me. Uh, that when he was seven, his grandmother, beloved grandmother died and they wouldn't let him go to the funeral. And he'd been trying to prove he could handle it ever since. Very mm -hmm. renowned in the grief community, you know, but they weren't supposed to, he wasn't supposed to talk about it. He didn't get to go. He had no holding for that loss at all. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's a, there's a wide array of the ways that kids are um, are navigated through loss, isn't there? Yeah, there sure is. And, and that's interesting. I'd never really thought about that before. I think it's also strikes me that it's interesting. Well, I guess part of part of the thing that funerals do is draw people together and draw families together. And that was a time in my life where my family was very transient. So I lived in 24 different places before fourth grade. And it was my mm -hmm. mom and this stepfather and I, living in campers that we pulled behind our Buick and we lived in a school bus and we stayed in a tent and we lived in a cabin with no electricity. And so there was this very huge disconnect in my life because I didn't have any media. I just had these two people who didn't really particularly want a kid in their life and um, kids weren't allowed to be seen and heard. And then when these sort of crises happened, I was thrown into this huge extended family where there were just kids everywhere and nobody had the sort of wherewithal to, to deal with any one child. So it was just this constant juggling of which world I was in. And subtext, I moved a lot as a kid. Um, subtext, that's another loss. Uh, it's a little bit different now, I noticed, because of social media. You know, mm -hmm. kids tend to maintain contact with who they knew before. For for me, anyway, uh, as soon as we moved, that was the end. I never saw those people again. 
Um, I don't know if that was your experience, but that's another loss going on in the background, isn't it? Let's let's come back and talk about that a little bit more. And listeners, you can go to my website, weatheringgrief.com or the Good Grief Host page. There's links to everything that I do. And to find Jessica Vitalis, you can go to jessicavitalis.com. Back after the break. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins looks at how natural healing and biological dentistry can safely and effectively treat most health problems. You'll hear about the innovations in both traditional and alternative medicine therapies with doctors and dentists, along with discussions with chiropractors, medical experts, homeopaths, naturopaths, and energetic healers. It's great to have all the best information in one place. And Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins brings it all together. Listen Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Jessica Vitalis, author of The Wolf's Curse. And before the break, uh, you and I were just... uh, Touching on the, uh, you know, I, I was saying during the break, I like to broaden the category of what people qualify as grief and, you know, frequent moves. For me, it was radically different geographic locations. Um, I know that really impacted me in a, in a grief direction um, because, you know, we'd show up home from school one day and they'd say, okay, we're moving. And that was pretty much the whole conversation. (laughs) And, you know, for you, it sounds as if you, um, 
it was so frequent that it was hard to get attached in a given place, which is also a loss, the loss of what should have been true, but wasn't, <laughs> uh, as Francis Weller says. True. Yeah, I, it, like you, it was, we're pulling out tomorrow, but because I had grown up with that lifestyle, I didn't know that I was missing out on anything. It wasn't until later when we settled down to some extent and I made some friends that I started to realize what I'd been missing out on. What I did know during those years and the loss that I felt was, was just being an outsider. I never felt like I understood the lives of the kids around me. And I think there is a loss in that and not feeling part of a community because we didn't have a normal house. We didn't have social, we didn't have any type of media. We didn't have a television. So I never understood the language that the people around me were speaking or how they lived their lives. You know, Jessica, if I, I feel as if that is also a very strong uh, sub theme in, in your book. Everybody is an outsider. Every, all the main characters experience themselves as misunderstood, um, to the side of what everyone else is doing. Uh, and I, I felt as if you really captured that, which of course is such a, a, a deep um, theme for middle schoolers. <laughs> so it seemed wonderful that the book also kind of got inside of that experience of being misunderstood and outside. That's so important to the, to the middle school experience, right? We're wanting, you're turning away from your family unit and you're wanting to make friends and develop some identity in a friendship group more so than when you're young and you just play with whoever happens to be there. And um, so the experience of, of living on the fringes of of society is just, it shows up in all of my work. I, kind of laugh now that I have this life where I would have just done anything for this life as a child. I never could have imagined the luxuries that I have now. Um, but I don't think that I would know how to write a middle grade book where the characters weren't outsiders. I don't know what it is to be a kid who is not an outsider. So it shows up in some way, shape or form in all of my work. And I, I must say that, that even, uh, you know, even kids that seem to be in the mix often feel like they're outside somehow at that age group. So having that deep experience, very, very, very helpful. Uh, as just a funny side note, I've now lived in the house where I lived for 36 years. And I think it's directly related to, you know, having moved so much. Now I could imagine maybe not living here anymore, but for I don't know. The first two decades, I sure couldn't. Uh, so it, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Cheryl. Well, it's, you know, so then I think sometimes about my kids who have this experience of one home, you know, their whole, their whole growing up. It's so different. So different. My husband and I were just laughing recently. We are coming up on five years in our current house and assuming we make it the next few months, um, which I'm assuming we will, but who knows, given the state of the world, but five years will be the longest that I have ever lived in any place in my entire life. So that feels really monumental. And the fact that we plan and hope to stay here is exciting. But even my own children, we've moved three or four times in their life. So I guess I'm not sure where I'm going with that other than just moving is something that we all encounter. But I, you know, part of what I want to say, I think is, is moving can be done 
in a way that is not traumatic, right? Mm -hmm. If you talk to your children about it and involve them in the process, because as you said, during the break, there is social media and there is a way to stay connected. I don't think that it has to be a traumatic experience, but there's a lot involved. I I do believe that that's, that's true of all the challenges we're talking about, that it's the processing. I've never had someone come to therapy, for instance, and say, you know, let's say my mother died when I was a kid and my, my family just did so well at, at navigating with me through that. And, um, but I, but I'm just a wreck about it. I've never had that happen. It's, it's when there wasn't the support, there wasn't the talking, you know, it's not the trauma itself. It's being stuck with the trauma, I think. Not that things aren't traumatic, but there is, um, I don't consider my kids, for instance, damaged. They have certain fears, but they also have certain gifts from having had that experience. I'd never choose it for anybody, obviously, but I can see what they've made of it. Absolutely. And I think that's part of the reason why, well, not part of it is almost entirely the reason why I became a writer, because when kids don't have the loving family that your children had to help them through that, for me, books were a lifeline. And so um, if we can put books in their hands that are going to help them process all of these different experiences, and like I said earlier, give them hope and give them models for sometimes the wrong way and oftentimes a healthy way to process and come out healthy on the other side, then I think that's a real gift. And it's not without a tradition because of course, most, uh, most fairy tales, you know, um, are about loss in one way or another there. It's writing that, that has helped kids over, over hundreds of years handle loss. Don't you think? That's absolutely true. Interesting aside, a lot of fairy tales are really, really, really much darker and more grim than what we um, what we see in media today. So they've been kind of cleaned up to fit modern audiences. But in historical times, when these tales were told, they were very often meant to frighten children to try to keep them in line and teach them morals and lessons. And so I think that's really interesting how how these stories change over time and how we change them to fit the narratives that we want to. And um, also, uh, you know, to me, there was no escaping death in earlier centuries because people died much more at much younger ages. And so there's some way you couldn't get out of that reality um, in the same way, perhaps, that parents try to protect kids now. That would have been impossible at earlier times. Let's let's share just one more um, uh, section of the book. You know, I I feel as if even these two children who are basically guiding each other through loss, right? They and they only have each other, but they do evolve in the way that they look at things over time. And I think this last excerpt captures that a, a little bit. Sure. Gage considers her words, thinks of how hard it is without his grandpapa. She's right. It's the memories of the time he spent with the old man, the love that shined from his eyes that keeps Cage going. When he thinks of his mother, there's nothing more than a faint stirring, 
a distant curiosity. Perhaps if he had something that belonged to her, he might feel more of a connection, a shawl that still carried a hint of her scent, gloves that hugged her hands. Even a pot or pan she used might offer some clue to who she was, give him something to anchor her in his mind. At least he has what his grandpapa told him about his mother. That's more that he can say about his father. His grandpapa claimed the man's identity was a secret Gage's mother took to the sea in the sky. The boy would be sadly disappointed if he knew the truth. His father had no interest in raising a child. In any case, a boating accident claimed him before Gage was born. The boy's thoughts turned back to his grandpapa. A hard lump of panic forms in his throat as the boy realizes he still doesn't know what kind of fish was his grandpapa's favorite. How many other things does he not know or will he forget over the winters? He recalls stumbling and falling on the corner of a chair, the flash of pain and the dark mark that appeared on his thigh soon after. What if memories are like bruises, strong in the beginning, but eventually fading away to nothing? That's a big fear for people, isn't it? Mm -hmm. The forgetting. But um, by the time you forget, it's, it's a different equation. Um, I did, I did so like him reflecting on his other losses in the in the midst of feeling the loss of his grandpapa, and watching Rue's loss, um, because some of the unrecognized losses, it's not until we have another loss that they kind of get wrestled with a bit. I, I feel that happened to Gage. That happened to Gage, and of course, that's just a very direct funneling of my own wrestling with my losses in terms of how to cope with this idea of this father that I'm supposed to love that I never met. It's very hard to feel very strongly about somebody that you've never met, and yet my grandmother, my mother talk about him. I call my grandmother on the anniversary of his death every year, not because I'm missing my father, but because I know it's important to her. So those were some of the things I was thinking about as I was as I was grappling with how these children would be processing their losses. And so Gage has lost a father that he never knew. He lost a mother that he never knew, but maybe knows a little bit more about. Mm -hmm. So there are just all the different ways that we lose people and, and, and we have to figure out how we're going to hold on to them and the bits and pieces that are important. And, and obviously, obviously, uh, you know, even in the case of, for instance, one of my kids is adopted and there are people in her life that aren't in her life, but there's a strong relationship that, you know, that has an impact. Mm -hmm. The people that are not there also have an impact. And um, it's a little confusing because I don't think we get encouraged to cultivate those relationships sometimes. Um, you know, you had a father, he was a person, he died. You have a connection some cultures would say to the ancestors, right? But, um, but how do you make that emotional? That to me is a big, big question. And there are ways to do it. Uh, Lorraine Hedke, who I interviewed quite a few years ago, um, that's her work is um, helping people to cultivate continued relationship, even when they didn't know the person. Um, you might be interested in her work. There's a kid's book actually that she wrote with her daughter about her mother who uh, her daughter never met, but it's about her daughter's relationship with her mother. So 
We're going to have to end it there for today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much for being with me. Thank you so much for having me, Cheryl. To find Jessica Vitalis, you can go to jessicavitalis.com, V-I-T-A-L-I-S. Next week, I'll have Rachel Michaelberg to talk about her memoir, Crash, How I Became a Reluctant Caregiver. In the midst of a, a pretty negative marriage, her husband was in a plane crash and uh, became brain injured. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.